Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of Q&A Quest. The one where I didn't have to think about the episode number. Yeah, no, I was impressed by that, because it didn't <laughs> sound like you were reading that or thinking about it. No. But I know for a fact you're correct. <laughs> <laughs> it had to happen eventually. Yeah, yeah, like eventually you just sort of get the swing of things, and yeah. now you're going to screw it up next week and say it's 24. <laughs> oh, yeah, most, or like well, 30 quote, unquote, even. next week. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, I'm Mike Apps, a.k.a. Wheels, and with me as I'm, always... I'm David McBurney, some corners of the internet know me as Fanboy Master. That's right. We should it's talk- tragic. <laughs> what was the, what's the origin of that nickname again? Uh, it was an old, like a 2002 issue of EGM where they just, like, they'd commission one of their artists to draw, like, various classes of fanboys. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, you had... You had irrational one like irrational fanboy which was just screaming about how the vic 20 was the greatest gaming system ever <laughs> and but you had fanboy you had fanboy master and this was like right after kingdom hearts came out and it just said it was just like this guy wearing like a hat that said something like dork lord and it just had and it was just him saying i'm sorry like such and such like anime fan 420 but your your sales numbers on kingdom hearts are off by a thousand and fourteen units as of 15 minutes ago i'm <laughs> i'm sorry but i win <laughs> and that that character was just amusing enough to me that i was just like yeah i'll make a throwaway name who cares and nice guess what name i ended up using repeatedly because i kept needing throwaway name <laughs> well that's a lot better than the origin of my nickname You've told me it like twice, and I always forget what it is. So it was back back in the college days when I was playing Warcraft Three. So I had like a a group of online buddies I played that with. Yeah. And also had them as like in semester friends. So one at some point I had like an in semester up uh, status up that said like I need a new nickname. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because people back in the day used to call me Mikey at times and that I found that extremely that ir- irritating yeah it seems that's the sort of name that you expect when like someone's condescending to you yeah so. e- exactly so I'm pretty sure that's why I threw up that message and then someone's like oh wheels and I'm like what no why <laughs> that's stupid <laughs> and it's never gone away completely. yes no I, and I, I like always just like tried to ignore it and just be like yeah yeah whatever and eventually they broke me so this is what happens when you give your friends power to nickname you yes I think I think the best part about that is like the first time I asked you where it came from I swear like I, it was trepidatious about it because it sounds like the sort of thing that someone would off coloredly nickname someone in a wheelchair <laughs> yeah see also yeah. the Burger King Kids Club <laughs> I, I, How did I, they, why, I why did the, they do that <laughs> I think the guy may have been like thinking something X-Men related like looking at a picture of Professor like Xavier Professor when he thought of, when he did that or something I don't know I remember that era of internet was really in love with the image of like Professor X getting pushed down the stairs <laughs> so I mean like oh, it's possible it's a weird era before. Yeah, well, we just went on a weird. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure someone would have wondered where these nicknames came from yeah, at some the point. Old so answering your question. The old Warcraft three sort of pre esports era. Remember when Warcraft three? When remember when people were complaining about how Defense of the Ancients was the worst Warcraft three mod anyone had ever thought of? 
hated that. I hated that mod. I hated that mod. What happened? I know. Like I didn't, even, I didn't even play Warcraft three, and I knew people that like hated Dota. What's Dota? Oh, Defense of the Ancients. It's this awful Warcraft three mod. Okay, I don't, I don't know what that is, and I probably will never have reason to know what that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's a its own genre. I I don't yeah. understand. I I don't. I, 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 I'm just remembering like that uh, review of StarCraft two that labeled it a MOBA with buildings. <laughs> <laughs> like it was StarCraft Two, like Legacy of the Void, and like genre MOBA with buildings. Uh, like, like I can't it, tell if the person who did it was being tongue in cheek or not. Like, like to me, a, a MOBA is just like a real-time strategy game without with all the cool real-time strategy stuff removed. It's just like moving the dudes. It's a lot of denying going on. I remember yeah, listening to like uh, the jargon that goes on in the, the I, strangest. <laughs> I, I've actually like tried to watch streams of them, and I don't, I don't really understand what the hell is going on. But the man, the commentators get really excited when stuff happens. Uh, that's esports streams, as long yeah. as they're good ones, anyway. Yeah. We are going off on a far <laughs> tangent. Let's move on. Yeah. I like. Uh, <laughs> I like watching uh, Hearthstone competitions a lot more. Those we no, we're not talking about Hearthstone. <laughs> like, there's there's certain discussions we're not having. One of them is like an angry skeleton screaming about visual novels, and one of them is you talking about Hearthstone for an hour. <laughs> we're not doing this. We're not doing this. We had like a thing. We we had like in our notes a thing of like, oh, this is what we'll start the show with, and then like we've just blindly ignored it. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. We, let's talk about the division for a second before we get to the questions, because I think a lot of people are ignoring it, especially because a lot of people in our demographic who don't look at it and think RPG. Yeah, I, that that's more what I'm thinking, because I'm sure like uh, Tom Clancy type fans and some more shooter type it. fans are yeah, looking I think, at I feel, it. Although I do feel that brand strength has diminished over the past generation. Oh, for sure. Um, Deservedly so, because of some less than stellar We're huge games. into Tom Clancy's End War 2. <laughs> no. And kind of the... I don't want to say, like, uh... I don't want to say, like, the fall of the Splinter Cell series, because I don't actually think it's diminished in quality. I just think they kind of... Like, it, it was it was a mismanaged brand. Yeah, they... they yeah, for sure. Way too many games. Um... Was I gonna say, way too many Splinter Cell games. That's for sure. Yeah, but way, way too, like there were so many Tom Clancy games at one yeah. point. Like Future Soldier, like, Future Soldier Two. Wait, there was Future Soldier. Yeah. Oh. The Ghost. Like Ranger. I remember, I remember Advanced Warfighter. Yeah, remember there was there was Ghost Recon, Ghost Recon, Desert Storm, or Desert something. The Jungle Strike Jungle and then Strike. Desert. And then Ghost Recon 2, which was only on consoles, I believe. That was which super made weird. No sense. Like Ghost Recon, I think was supposed to be like the more console-friendly version of Rainbow Six when it was first conceived, and then like, like that went away at some point, and then like Ghost Recon turned into I don't even know. Like this is yeah. this is a long history, and we shouldn't be going into yeah. it because like we should just be talking about the division. Okay, so yeah, the division is. Uh, it's gotten some comparisons to Destiny, and rightfully so, because it has uh, some similar structures, which uh, which I'll talk about shortly. But uh, largely, it's a cover-based shooter that plays a lot like the Mass Mass Effect games. I'm talking more two and three than one. 
Um, but it's it's more unlike Destiny. It's more RPG first and shooter second. So it feels more RPG-ish, if that makes any sense. Like um, yeah, I suppose that makes sense. Like it's it's like in Destiny, if you're really good at shooters, you can you have a better chance of making up your lack of numbers than in the division. Is essentially what sure. You're Sure, and uh, I mean, I had to have good good aim in the division anyway, but um, it's it's like yeah. it's you know, there's always that sort of like push and pull of action to RPG in an action RPG. Sure, and the so one of the cool things I liked about it immediately was there's kind of this, unlike a lot of other Tom Clancy games, there isn't like this uh, draw. This not draw. What's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, attempt, I guess, to make the games f- as realistic as possible, which you can understand in most time Clancy games. But uh, so you you get different different skills, you know, kind of typical RPG where they have a cooldown. And some of the skills I I saw testing it out today was like one where you get a riot shield and you can shoot behind that, but you don't have to keep a stock of riot shields or anything. You can just reuse it whenever refills. And the the same for like a sticky bomb, I think was another another one of the skills. And the first one you get is like uh, detects enemies around you and kind of lights them up in the UI so they're easy to see. So, uh... As far as the cover mechanics and everything, combat felt really nice. Like, as good as Mass Effect 2's combat felt in that 2 and 3. And I really loved the, the shooting in those games, so... Yeah, no, those games actually felt really good. Yeah. Um, so, I didn't do anything specifically multiplayer, just did kind of some missions and stuff. But the nice thing is, as you're like walking around New York City, like random objectives and things will pop up you know, between you and wherever you're going, and you can just complete those and get loot and stuff. And and that's really where the comparison to Destiny comes from, is there's a lot of different guns with different stats to mess around with um, to find something that fits your play style or just, you know, uh, has, like, maybe the stability stat you're looking for. Because uh, I definitely was having some trouble with uh, hitting enemies, because obviously the starting guns don't have the greatest ability, but... It turns out your starting guns are garbage, like, dirty old pieces yeah. of junk that don't shoot straight. <laughs> but it def... So, you know, other than that comparison, it doesn't really feel like Destiny at, at, at all. It's it's more... It's, it takes place in all in New York City. Um... Oddly, there doesn't seem to be any quick travel, uh, although maybe that's hmm. something that opens up later. Yeah, that seems like something that, like, at least at the beginning, you'd want to hide by yeah. virtue of the fact that, like, the point is sort of the desolate, unfriendly world. Yeah, and so it's got this whole. It's also got this whole concept called the darkness zone, which I guess is supposed to be where the uh, virus that took down New York City hit worse. And I, I'm not, I'm not really sure I get it completely yet, but. That's where you can get the best loot, and uh, I think there's some different PvP things that can happen in there. I was watching some video where you could like go in there, and people are generally helping each other, but at some point you can like go rogue against other players for the chance at like additional loot and whatnot. So um, 
I'll definitely I'm gonna try and stream it some at some point. So uh, over this week, well, shoot, I guess it's gonna be too <laughs> too late by the time this episode goes up because the the beta only rests last yeah, through the weekend. <laughs> um, but if you're listening to the, to this now, I've probably published some uh, YouTube videos of me playing it, so check that out. It seems like it's a pretty cool game. Story is nothing to write home about, but. Um, if you like cover-based shooters and RPGs, uh, this is probably something worth checking out. Uh, yeah, don't ignore it just because it's like a Tom Clancy game. It might be up your alley. It's got that sort of multiplayer yeah. uh, RPG in a strange apocalyptic world thing going yeah. for it. I know Ubisoft gets a lot of bread, bad credit these days. Rightfully so, but they still... Remember that they still own a lot of quality developers. Ubisoft Montreal's biggest problem is that they're never given; they're always given one year less than they need. Yep, it's very but, true. Uh, but I feel like the the thing about it is that like Ubisoft releases a lot of disappointing games, but they don't release a lot of bad games. Yeah, and I'm like those disappointing games are definitely hurting their reputation. But like I I don't think I've ever yet bet on an Ubisoft game and come away with, like, this is absolutely irredeemable. Um, well, I can think of one. Are you thinking of Unity? No. It's mm. it's a DS game. Oh, you son of a... <laughs> <sighs> There's a reason that, like, the first picture I have of meeting Wheels in person is me, like, teaming up with another guy to punch him in the face. <laughs> oh, hey, the... the uh... Division is developed by the developer of Far Cry 3. Huh. And I heard good things. Assassin's that. Creed Revelations. Fair enough. Massive Entertainment. Interesting. Oh, I remember Massive. Yeah, fair enough. They developed Ground Control. To Major Tom? No, Ground Control, Ground Control Dark Conspiracy, Ground Control 2, Operation Exodus, World in Conflict, World in Conflict Soviet Assault. Yeah, yeah. I don't know anything about those games whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew, I know them by name, basically. Meanwhile, I was looking at everything in the Ghost Recon franchise, and who boy. <laughs> uh, where to begin, man? We we aren't going to begin. Oh my that. god, Shadow Wars! I forgot about Shadow Wars. Yeah, Shadow Wars. We might actually be able to argue is on topic by virtue oh, for of that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure RP Gamer reviewed that even. Yeah, and it was pretty good too. Yeah. But uh, no, I was just lost in the fact that there's Rainbow Six, Rainbow Six Rogue Spear, Rainbow Six Takedown, Rainbow Six Mission Korea, and then Rainbow Six Six Three. <laughs> None of those are two. Rogue Spear, if you look at it, is technically two. Where does it say that? It it doesn't say it, but like there was Rainbow Six, and that had some expansions, I believe, and then there was Rogue Spear, and that had some expansions. If it had some expansions, then like the Rainbow Six series list on. Uh, I'm pretty sure it did. It, then the Rainbow Six series list on Wikipedia is not in chronological order. Yeah, here we go. Oh, no, wait. Mission Pack Eagle Watch. Okay, okay. But by no, <laughs> by no reckoning is this a, K- a frickin' is this Rainbow Six uh, 3. Okay, we're moving. Let's move on. We're moving on. We're moving on. I don't want to talk about Rainbow Six Lone Wolf, oh. which is apparently a PS1 only game. 
You don't want to talk about Hawks? No, we're not talking about Hawks. We're not talking about End War. We're not talking about, like, Ghost Recon, Future Soldier, or Wildlands, or that canceled Rainbow Six that no one ever saw because they announced it and then we're like, oh, this is terrible. We're not even going to show it again. No, Wildlands is something that's... Oh, it's an open-world tactical shooter. Oh, that's right. I saw something about this. Actually, thing. that leads us into one of our questions. Oh, yeah. Let's just go right into that question. It's a good idea. What is the question? Yeah. Or do we need to uh, talk about the contest first? You know what? Let's talk about the contest at the well, end. Well, since you mentioned it, we have to talk about yeah. the contest first. <laughs> what, shouldn't we make them wait till the end of the episode so they actually have to listen to us talk? I suppose, but like then they're just gonna fast forward and tell right, you're talking right. about. All right, let's let's talk about the contest. So, uh, we've got two codes for Saturday morning RPG, and these are cross buy codes. So that's Vita PS4. Uh, so, to I guess tie into the theme of that game, uh, we want you to send us a pitch for a RPG based on your favorite Saturday morning cartoon. Uh, so basically just describe how you would make an RPG based on that. And we'll pick uh, two people that send us those out of a hat to win the codes. Yeah. Uh, so just leave those on the forum thread for this episode. You can send them to me by email, wheels at rpgamer.com. And we'll give you, we'll say, two weeks from the time this episode goes up. Uh, I must admit, I did not know that this this existed until Wheels told me that, like, oh, we've got these codes to give away, and then I heard the <laughs> concept, and I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. I kind of want to. I kind of want to play it now. It, it, yeah, I'm gonna have to. <laughs> I'm gonna have to pick it up. Uh, but I guess I don't follow. Indie. So there, you just you just sold two copies for the two you just gave away, developers. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I don't. I'm not good at following indie RPGs very well. It's, it, well it's, hard to, it's hard to keep track of indie games until they're already a running concern by virtue of the fact that it's like there's hundreds of these every year and nothing that remarkable about a lot of them. Well, I mean, if you do a filter... It's to say they're bad, but it, like, it's if, hard to really if you sell do, them like If you do a filter to exclude the term roguelike, I'm sure it'd probably be an easier list to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but let's, let's let's get to the first question since it was related to our random yammering uh, open about open world nonsense. Yeah. Uh, so this see. one's from Budai. Okay. There's a time when being an open world game was interesting for just being that, but it seems open world has become so common that games can't just get by on that alone. I think Fallout 4 might have been hurt by this. Uh, I don't think so, but we'll go into uh, that. I don't, I don't think sales-wise yeah. it was. No. Also, that thing sold like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> also, open-world fatigue does sit in. Do you think this is or isn't true, and what sort of things do open-world games need to bring to the table to stand out? Um, not be buggy. I'm just going to throw uh, that I don't think there. that that even needs, is necessarily the case. I mean, see also yeah, Fallout 4. That's true. <laughs> uh, I, I guess... Sh- I, not huh? be broken, I think I should say. Again, that's debatable, but, uh, uh, like, I I guess what I would say is that, like, yeah, open world as being a gimmick in and of itself is pretty much dead. Yeah. Like, because, like, I remember watching gaming's landscape back in 2002 when you could start, when you were starting to see this seismic shift where developers were 
where everyone was sort of looking at Grand Theft Auto 3. Yeah. And, like, the way that game sold was so strange, because, like, you know, nowadays, like, even with Grand Theft Auto, a Grand Theft Auto game comes out, and it sells an absurd number of copies all at once, and then it's done. Like, Grand Theft Auto uh, 5 sold, like, 10 million copies in about a week. Um, but, like, Grand Theft Auto 3, I remember, like, it came out in a crowded, like, market in late 2001, because that was the first year the PS2 had good games on it, like, Metal Gear Solid 2 came out that uh, fall, Devil May Cry came out that fall, uh, Jack and Daxter came out that fall, like, a bunch of their early PS2 games came out. And then, but, like, Grand Theft Auto three started selling and it was just at the top of the ps2 sales charts for like a year and a half like it was crazy like it like it duked it out with its own sequel but like word, that, word of mouth yeah yeah like that like that game was so different from what a grand theft auto is now because it really was just a word of mouth success like there was plenty of ads for it but like it wasn't the all-encompassing thing but like you know at that time you start seeing responses in game design where it's like everything's like we have to sort of we have to ape this and maybe in aping this we will understand what made it so big like because you know it was such a seismic like such a different way of approaching how to design a game than anything else was doing at the time uh and you know, at the time, like, you just got, like, GTA clones, GTA clones, and eventually we sort of settled on calling them sandbox games. <laughs> but, like, at this point, sandbox isn't even really a genre, it's a design ethos. Yeah. Like, it's not, this is a sandbox game, it's, this is X kind of game, it is using a sandbox environment. And, like, there's a reason for that, and, like, sandboxes, I think... Like, you know, from the outside looking in, I would imagine that sandboxes make more and more sense the more, like, that each individual asset costs to create. Because, like, once you get to a certain point, like, a sandbox becomes really appealing from a, like, cost standpoint because it's like, yeah, you have to make that huge environment, but everything fits in that huge environment. Like, you make that huge environment, and then you don't make more of them. <laughs> like, you can, like, if a mission's supposed to be really special, you can send someone to, like, a special one-time-use environment. But, like, you can, it, like, oh, I need to make another mission, or, oh, I need to add more content. Okay, we'll sprinkle another collectible around the environment. And, like, the player has to go through the environment, like, another comb through it another 50 times, because, like, there's some... And so it makes it easier to say, like, look at how much content there is in the game. Like, if a mission... Like, it, it sort of shapes the way you have to design a mission when you're going through, like, mission-based open-world games where it's like, okay, like, we can't make a ton of new, unique environments, so we have to sort of design our missions around, like, the one environment, which means that if you do need to move a mission where it from where it currently takes place in the story there's less of a hassle about how you're doing that because you're just changing where it falls in the mission order Right. just, just all those little things kind of add up to make this like a really appealing way to design a game when you're trying to save money <laughs> <laughs> while not exactly making a game cheap it does make it a lot less insane than a ton of one time use assets yeah uh, but 
that's that's just one of the reasons that I think that open worlds have become more of a thing. And then, of course, there's also just the fact that, like, they've come to show that, like, players like a dense environment as much as anything. Like, the amount of space that a player might traverse might get smaller, uh, like, in the holistic sense of, like, walking from one end to the other of an open world might be smaller than, like, walking from one end of every level in a level-based level game. But, like, you know, there's those details that they'll notice when they have to go over something over and over will, like, entertain them in a way that they wouldn't from a level progression game. Yeah. Sorry, I just decided to, like, make a very amateurish idea about design theory and how game budgets work. No, that's okay. <laughs> I, I do understand the, the sentiment that fatigue does set in, because, like... They, they necessitate many. a different style of design that can end up producing something very homogenous. I mean, we did just discuss Ubisoft, which there is the Ubisoft open world game. Yeah, and we also got a lot of really, really bad open world games. You say that now, but I mean, like, we don't have to suffer through roadkill anymore. Yeah, well, I just mean that... <laughs> Is there is is there a more early like I, I don't mean to undercut your point I just want to say is there a sure. more early two thousands game than Roadkill It was a <laughs> knockoff of both GTA and Twisted Metal. Yeah, no, there's no, nothing more early two thousands than that. Uh, but go ahead with the point you were making. Um, what point was I making? Um, uh, well. I just recall there being like a lot of, and most of these actually came from Europe, uh, lots of uh, terrible like open world RPGs, like uh, two, oh. two Worlds, stuff oh, like man. that. Oh, man, yeah, those were all like, like in contrast to the ones I think of that were like generally responses to like Grand Theft Auto, there's the ones that are responses to Oblivion. Yeah. And, and you know later Beth the Bethesda RPG style and yeah. like Two Worlds was like the first uh, like response to the Bethesda RPG style and it was just like oh what what have we signed up for? <laughs> it was just a lot of developers trying to obviously make a quick buck on that whole phenomenon phenomena well, I can't talk uh, with without really having the budget or know how to do so and I think. At this point, a lot of that has scaled back, partially because, uh, the, probably because of the success of a lot of RPGs that aren't open world. So yeah, there's always that push pull that happens. Yeah, so I feel I, I feel like uh, as an observer, it seems like open worlds would have like a higher initial budget threshold. Like you can't make a cheap open world. Yeah, but they scale they scale higher faster. You get more value for your dollar. Sure. After that threshold. Again, that's that's just what it looks like to me, but I have no I have no way of quantifying that. But uh, uh, so, as but yeah. Maybe we should talk about the other part of the question. What was the other part of this? Uh, no, I just want to talk about two worlds now. Oh, do we have to? <laughs> no, we don't. But okay. I want to. All right. Uh, all I want to say is, oh my gosh, that video game! I remember finding it for like a dollar and bought it and had like so much fun laughing at it. Oh my god. There's a, there a period where I bought like really cheap like open world RPGs of varying quality. I think Two Worlds ended up being the worst. 
Did you, and it was like... Did huh? you get the sequel? No, I did not play Two Worlds 2. I'm given to understand it's actually pretty decent. I also didn't play any of the gothic games. It, the funny, which are the... Huh? I was going to say, the funny thing is, yes, it's a much better game, but it's really an average RPG, making it yeah, almost like, less interesting than the original. Yeah, because Two Worlds is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Two Worlds is completely hilarious from top to bottom, because like, they're trying, but... Oh yeah. my, they're not succeeding. Um, they're trying, but it is a steaming pile of feces. Like, I remember playing the 360 version and, like, just wandering out into the wilderness, and it was, it was like, this the sort of game that made Oblivion seem more acceptable. Like, all the bugs in Oblivion seemed so much more acceptable because they were nothing on the sort of bugs you were seeing in Two Worlds, where, like, you'd wander out into anywhere that there were enemies, and the frame rate, frame rate would hit the tank and just hit, like, 10 frames a second. <laughs> And it's just like, oh, what is happening? Like, just, like, you get lost in the first, like, room because, like, the game isn't explaining how doors work. <laughs> like, it's, it was super bad. But I remember, like, I picked, like, that, Venetica, and Divinity 2, the Dragon Knight Saga, oh, wow. up at the same time. And the, the most remarkable thing about Venetica was that it was a 2009 or 10 Xbox game that looked like an original Xbox game. <laughs> and <laughs> Divinity 2 was uh, mostly fine. It was just, you know, it was weird that it was published by Atlas, which I felt like the biggest deal. Yeah, it was very weird. But, uh... Yeah, it was, uh... <laughs> like, they, they're, those uh, arguably used to be more a dime a dozen, and they've kind of tailed off. Yeah. Despite despite Skyrim complete Skyrim Fallout Three Fallout Four all completely replicating the success of Oblivion, like other developers oh, yeah. seem to have given up on chasing that gravy train, and what was left was like the only other ones that really tried it and succeeded were Hey, The Witcher Three. <laughs> yeah, but then again, the they kind of built up their development skills and some yeah no like there's a reason that the witcher 3 is the one that does that yeah. and not the witcher 1 2 yeah i remember when the witcher 1 was built on the neverwinter nights engine i do that still is very weird to me and like you can you can still put it in like overhead mode and play it like an old bioware <laughs> game weird and like it plays awfully that way but you can do it <laughs> Uh, but yeah, let's let's get on to the second part of the question. Okay. Uh, da -da -da. What sort of things do open world games need to bring to the table to stand out? Uh, I, I guess I guess part of the reason that I, I spent so much time on the first part was that like I was I was arguing essentially that open world game isn't really a sh like genre; it's just design style at this point. Yeah. But, you know, like, as with any design style, there's innovations to bring to that table. Like, uh, you know, the, the most engrossing open world experience I've had in the past few years was uh, Metal Gear Solid V. Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. And, and part of that is because, like, it's, it's a different kind of game, you know, it's, it's yeah. more action. But at the same time, there's also just the fact that, like, weird shit happens in MGS5. yeah. Like, you'll wander past an outpost and it feels lovingly detailed. Like, it feels different than the other outposts you've wandered past. Because it's like, you you go past it and it's like, oh, you know, this is, this isn't, 
you know, you can see the building blocks that put, were put into place to make it, but, like, it's still got something about it that's, like, a little different. Like, you'll find a unique uh, piece of music that you can put on your in-game, like, music device, and that sort of... The very fact that music was there gave the gave the area its own identity, because, like, these were the guys that were blasting the final countdown. Yeah. Or just, like, you know, just all the silly things that you can... I, I think one of the other things that really helps is, like, open-world games get a lot of longevity from being able to do silly things to them. Yeah. Like, MGS5 is really good at giving you, like, all of your equipment does weird things in combination with other things. <laughs> like, oh, this guy's trying to drive away, so I put something in front of him, and he sort of stops his truck waiting for someone to move it, and then I, like, attach a balloon to his truck and steal his truck and him at the same time. But you go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say that for me, uh, an open world for an open world game to stand out, it's got to be, I'd say, give me a lot of focus on what to do, but give me a lot of freedom within that. Like, I've played games like Skyrim and just been like extremely bored. Like, you can go ahead and follow along the main story, which I've never found too interesting and. I, I've known Elder Scrolls lore nerds, and I, I can't understand them. <laughs> yeah, but I, I just get bored uh, just wandering around the world. But if I look at something like MGS5, you know, go to missions. Uh, but you, you can you can do free roam, right? I haven't yeah, it, like but... yeah, like the the th one of the other great things about MGS5 and is the way that it splits the difference. If you want, you could basically never have to go back. To mother base like yeah. you could just play the entire game running or like riding a horse or stealing cars or whatever you want to do to get from mission to mission but if you don't feel like treating it like an open world game like you finish a mission you go back to your helicopter and you never and like you basically never have to traverse more than you want to yeah and like you can play it like a strictly linear game and to me that's great because it's you know, some people may say, oh, well, that's not really open world. But it is, because if you look at any individual mission and the way they're designed, there's so many different ways to approach things. And given all the different weapons and tools you can buy in the game, there's, like, you could play the same mission. It could be vastly different every time every time you go through it. And, and I've had that happen, just kind of like dying and replaying a mission a few times and just, like, weird different things happen. And that, that to me, is what makes a, an open-world game stand out. Not necessarily a big open world that you can explore, but um, instead just a lot of freedom in the way um, you approach kind of uh, focused objectives. Like, doing the missions in MGS5, there's always specific things you need to do, but, you know, it's not like... It doesn't necessarily tell you, oh sneak in here and save this person it's save this person you can sneak in there and save them or you can pull out your rocket launcher and go to town <laughs> yeah that, that's that's the other thing is that like you know like it shouldn't just be freedom to go where you want but freedom to get there how you want to yeah and, and it's I, like there's a lot of there's one of the other great things in mgs5 is there's a lot of things that like you'll do something and it 
like it shouldn't work, but it does. And I've mentioned that before, but another one that's one of my favorites is once you get to the point where you can Fulton like giant crates of stuff, like if you jump on top of the thing you're Fultoning and then like put uh, put the balloon, attach the balloon to it and then hold the attach balloon button you're like snake will grab onto the balloon and you'll just fly back to mother base with it. <laughs> That's pretty But if cool. you don't if you don't hold onto the balloon, you can keep standing there. But what'll happen is like snake will fall off and probably die. <laughs> because like the 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 surface is not uh it is not a stable surface and he'll just fall off and either break his leg if he's lucky or die. Oh. <laughs> uh. Yeah, what I was gonna say is that's this. This is kind of the thing that a lot of op- open world RPGs, uh, I think, fail on is they just give you a large world, but that's it, and that doesn't necessarily really do anything gameplay wise. Um, you know, it, it's got to be more than just oh, this big world you can wander around. There has to be. St- stuff in there. There has to be um, and different ways to approach things and basically give you uh, at least what feels like a unique experience, even if it isn't. It's all about what you populate your world with. Yep. Um, and, like, how you let me interact with it. Yeah, and as, as much as I like to bash on Batista a lot, you know, my time with Fallout 4 has felt like my own unique experience. The best part is I misheard that as Bash, bash Batista. <laughs> well, I mean, no one's gonna, no one's gonna, no one's gonna go to bat for that guy. Yeah. Well, maybe for his performance in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, which was entertaining. Oh yeah, yeah. He's still a poor man's rock in the Hollywood world, though. Yeah. Oh, that's for sure. Uh, and have we covered everything on this question? Yeah, I think we've mostly hit the major points. There's okay. a lot of ways you could, like, open world's a big category, and there's a lot of ways to make it interesting. Just give me a unique, give, like, give me a way to interact with the world that plays to your game's strengths. Yep. And, you know, I'll be interested. There you go. Alright, let's move on. Alright, so our next question is about East. Sweet. Uh, is this also from Budai? Yes. Yeah, anything, anything. Like, they're, they're all labeled after they've answered, nice. asked all the I questions. See. Yeah. Uh, you both mentioned the East series while, a while back. That was a series yeah. I had never played until some of the remakes were released on Steam. What were your experiences with the series, and which game stands as your highlight? I think we're both going to answer the same thing for highlight. Oath and Falgana. Oath and Falgana. Yeah, like that's that's the reigning champion. Not to say that any of the others, not to undercut any of the others, but I mean Oath and Falgana. Yeah, especially being a remake of a pretty poor game. I, I've seen people that dispute that, but like it's definitely the one that I care the least about. Like <laughs> Zelda Two likes are not my alley. Uh, yeah. 
I'm not going to defend any version of East Three. The garbage. Other than Ogama. Yeah. But as far as you won't defend any version of Wanderers from East. No. As far as my experience is actually uh, relatively new. Like back in the '90s and like my emulation playing days, I had uh, tried the NES version of East, which never came out here. Uh, because I read about it a lot in EGM, I believe. EGM had a lot of stuff about ETH at one point yeah. or another. So it's like, what the heck is the series? So I tried that version out, and it was trash. So I kind of ignored the series for a long time. And I, I misheard. What was your uh, first version? The NES, well, Famicom version. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow, that was that's a weird version to seek out as a first version. Well, I mean, you know, it was emulation days, so it was just... just well, this is to easy to emulate. Why don't yeah. I play this? Yeah. Stake number one. So the next one I ended up trying was E6, because someone told me, hey, this is like Secret of Mana. That's uh, str- like... I guess it's they're both action RPGs. Yeah. E6 is one of the less butchered ports that we had at the time, though. It is, and eventually I liked that game, but at the time I did not, because I did not think it was like Secret of Mana at all. Yeah, and like that was bad set expectations to yeah. set for you. Six is uh, six is the like real beginning of that paradigm. It is kind of interesting, actually, that each is kind of split into about three paradigms. At this point. Yeah. Um. But af- after that, I was listening to a Retronauts podcast about Falcom. That's a good one. That's uh, from like 2007, but that's a good podcast. Which is really interesting. So once I found out that East 1 and 2 for the, uh, uh, the Turbo Graphics. Turbo? Yeah, it's the Turbo version. Was on the Wii Virtual Console. I picked that up, and that was kind of kind of hooked from there. Uh, uh, but... Point. The funny thing about that was I eventually ordered Oath and Fogana directly from Falcom, I believe. You ordered like the Chinese version and patched that? No, that was that was Origins. That oh, that was later. Origins yeah. that you ordered the Chinese version. Yeah, because it was only thirty dollars. Uh, yeah, this was also a situ- this was also at the time when there was no forthcoming like, oh, all of these games are going yeah. to come here. So I found out that there was a whole fan patch for that, so I bought the game directly from Falcom, which I thought was pretty cool. And, yeah, that was what actually got me hooked. Like, you know, 1 and 2 for TurboGrafx, really cool, sweet music. Like this, oh, this but, is a neat old RPG. Yeah, but Oath and Fogana, yeah, that was when I got hooked. And what about uh, you? Uh, okay, like... I spent a long time trying to get hold of, like, I, I remember reading, like, EGM would do retrospectives of, like, their early history, and one of the things they brought up was that, like, East Book 1 and 2 for Turbo Graphics was, like, one of their first, like, I think it, it wasn't the first thing that got a 10, it might have been. It might have been, like, the first thing that ever got a 10 from any reviewer. And, like, it was like, oh, man, that's that's interesting, and then I remember... When E6 got announced, I was like, this is E6? How many of these are there? It's just, like, wh- where did this come from? Because like, I, I remember learning about these two things at around the same time. And it's like, how many of these were there? Were, have they been steadily releasing these? What's going on? 
And like, so I was interested in E6. I think I may have rented it once, but didn't get very far in it. I remember enjoying the demo of it that was included with official PlayStation Magazine at one point. But uh, I was not able to get hold of a full version for any significant length of time. And thus, like, it was it was remained as one of those series that I looked out for, but could not really play for a while. And then around the time of the uh, Retronauts that like, I feel like they did one that was specific to East at some point. I might be misremembering, but I remember there was one that was in response to the DS Legacy of East. Which is not a great version, but did come with a good soundtrack. I think that may have just been the whole Falcom episode they do. It, it's they possible. I, like, I feel like we both learned about this from essentially the same thing. Yeah, I, th- I think they talked about like the history of Falcom, but you know, it was most... It, mo- you know, most, most was the most well-known part of yeah. that. So. It's mostly. Like I was gonna say it's mostly about East because this is before, obviously, Exceed. Uh, there, there was not going to be a lot of people with first-hand knowledge of Forsarian. Yeah. But uh, it was nice. Yeah, it, was... it was nice that not too long after this was when Exceed started bringing Falcom games over, and we were all much better for it. Yeah, like I enjoyed Legacy of East, even though like I I knew from uh, statements I'd heard about the older games that it was compromised and like you could tell just by looking at it yeah. but like the, the core game was still good enough that I could still enjoy it and so like that was when I started to really start trying to like hunt around for East games so like I picked I think I've got kicking around the PSP and uh, PS2 versions of East 6 nice PSP version would be good if it weren't for the fact that it has, like, awful, awful loading times. Yeah. That, that thing's a strange relic, because, like, Falcom made a ton, a ton of uh, PSP games, but that was before they started making PSP games. Yeah. So, like, that and the th- first three Legend of Heroes games that are on the PSP are all ported by other random nobodies and are bad ports. I wonder if that's part of what spurned them to start doing the ports themselves, or was just... Well, it didn't stop them. Like, it didn't make them start making DS or PS2 ports. That's true. But, uh. Yeah, like, I, I don't know what specifically about the PSP enticed them, but. Like, I, I became very fond of first and second Paradigm East, and I'm still. I still enjoy third Paradigm East, although I still feel like we haven't gotten the game that perfects the formula to the extent that Oath and Felgana did. Probably not, but in their defense, it's. Definitely a harder formula to. Yeah, I'm. I'm really. I'm really excited for Eastside. I feel like that could be the one. Yeah. But. Uh, oh yeah, I, I. If we're gonna talk a bit about Eastside, we might as well talk about the uh, three different paradigms and what we like the best in each of them. Sure. Uh, uh, f- first being bump combat. Yeah, the bump combat paradigm, like. It's it's fast paced given the vintage of what it is, but it's yeah. still a very simplistic RPG. Like uh, ram into things from off center. It, ca- it, uh, it kind of almost feels like turn based, like a simple turn based RPG at high speeds. Yeah, to an extent. Yeah. Uh, except that there's like a way to do things where you'll just not take damage. Yeah. That's true. But, but the thing, but yeah, it's the same principle of like it's it's all about numbers. It's all about numbers. Like you need to be at a certain level threshold, or you'll just bounce off bosses. <laughs> uh, it is kind of interesting though that like 
we didn't get most of them, but like looking through all Japanese RPGs, there's tons of East knockoffs. Yeah. Like, like that that style of combat existed before East. Like it owes something to Highlight of all things, but like you start seeing like things like Lagoon, or there's like a oh god, Lagoon. Let's not talk about Lagoon. Well, the P- the SNES version of Lagoon doesn't use bump combat, but the original like PC eighty eight version does. Of Lagoon? Yeah. There was a PC version of Lagoon. The PC eighty eight, like Japanese PC. Yeah, it blows my mind. Like Lagoon was originally a PC RPG that was just a bald faced East knockoff. <laughs> like I assume we're both thinking of the near launch SNES title. Yep. I that's ha- like basically impossible because your sword has like a range of two pixels. I have that game. Yeah, it's it's got its charms. It's not good. Um, <laughs> like it, its charms are in like if you're really really fond of really early SNES games, it looks and feels like the er, like everything that came out right after Mario World. Yeah, its charms are it it's was something to play when you were bored of Mario World and Castlevania Four. That's and you could it. wonder why like how bored you had gotten where this seemed like your better option, but. Uh, well, I had, like, I had some fun with a rental back in the day. Enough that I was like, hey, let me pick up this game. I have nostalgia for this. Whoops. Well, at least it wasn't expensive. Yep. Um, but yeah, like there's there's a lot of East knockoffs for like the Turbo CD that we just didn't get because it's just like, whatever, man. You can be playing East. <laughs> but like, the, like that was actually a really, like, you know, very ingrained paradigm for a while was like the action RPG with the bump combat the, like you sit there to restore health like even the interface I'm trying to remember uh, what like it, it, I'm trying to remember what particular tale of ancient uh, of, of East Asia this is like you know you've got the classical Chinese and Japanese novels like uh, you know uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms there's like a handful of like canonical uh old East Asian literature. I'm trying to remember which one this was, but there was one that was like the most bald-faced East knockoff I've ever seen. <laughs> it was mainly by like Data East. Uh, but, you know, like the the bump combat was actually really influential at the time. <laughs> and early East has a lot of imitators, but none of them do it as well as East. And then they threw it away so that they could make a Zelda 2 knockoff, but I don't count that as a paradigm. <laughs> No, it doesn't count. It's been re- remade and replaced. Yeah, and both versions of 4 go back to the 1 and 2 paradigm. Anyway, yeah. To varying degrees of success. But the best the best version of the 1 and 2 paradigm is Chronicles. It, it's Chronicles. Yeah. Uh, that, that is kind of neat that, like, every... They've remade East 1 so many times, but it always is bump combat East. <laughs> they've never tried to, like, update it to play more like a modern East game. It's always been bump East... And then, you know, after around five, they start experimenting with what becomes like the second paradigm, which is, uh, hey, this is the fastest action RPG around. <laughs> and still super, super numbers heavy, but like also really reflexive, strangely reflexive. <laughs> and with a vaguely Zelda esque uh, dungeon paradigm. Sorry, I'm just pontificating about East now. I apologize. No, that's fine. That's what we were asked to do. But yeah, and the, and the best of that paradigm is, as we've mentioned, it's it's Oath. Yeah, it's definitely Oath. 
but the rest are worth playing. Like Origins, or Origin or Six are both easy second bests. So, and Origin, and given that there's only three, <laughs> Origin is pretty neat and a little bit different than the other two. Yeah, if you if you want to play an East game where you're not a like silent redhead, then like hey, there's Origin for you. Uh, and then. Uh, there's the current paradigm that they're still kind of working the kinks out of, which is uh, party members. Yeah. Like, switch between your three dudes. And I, I feel like... I like a memories, lot, but it's definitely not perfect. Yeah, like, it's it's still waiting for... Like, it, it's too, it starts less bumpy than, like, the... Uh, it's it's having less of a growing pains than the, the second paradigm had. East 5 is a, kind of a really bad game. Um, but like East Five is easily like the progenitor of the like fast action RPG style. Yeah, you can see what it would become from there. It's just badly implemented. Like neither Seven nor uh, Memories of Coquetta are anywhere near that bad. But like I feel like both of them are still sort of pushing towards what they want that style to play like. Yeah, they're also much more story driven. I think that's just a um, obviously. The way the whole company is going, based on the Legends of Hero series, so yeah, yeah, it's it's got a bit more Trails DNA in it, but uh, still, although nowhere near as verbose as those, no, nothing on them. No, I still say it's still quite light story-wise as far as yeah. JRPGs it's, it's go. It's just, it's mostly just jarring if you've just gotten finished playing something like Oath. Sure. Or it's just like, oh my gosh, like there's barely any dialogue in them. <laughs> Like, you get through a ten-minute introduction, and then, okay, get going. But, uh... And then, you know, I, I would say that Memories is a slightly better game than Seven, but... Yeah, I think it benefits a lot from the extra power of the Vita. Yeah, even though it clearly started life as a PSP game. Yeah, but uh, I think... I think uh, Seven definitely felt a little cramped on the PSP. Yeah, and I, I think with this next one they'll really knock it out of the park. Yeah. Hey, that's why they delayed it an entire year. <laughs> Maybe. I think so. Um, I it's probably that, and I think they uh, had had to get um, what you call it, Tokyo Xanadu out at a specific time, so they probably had to. Oh, they devote yeah, a lot of resources like an to that. Game. Yeah. I don't. I'm not sure what. Sure what deal the deal was with that but i know they had to ship it at some specific date so. yeah it came out in like november i really want to play that yeah hopefully xseed will bring that over yeah if they're if they're if they keep poking at the idea of xanadu next on pc i can't imagine they'll skip tokyo xanadu yeah but, uh, hey we'll finally have a version of xanadu next that's not for the n-gauge <laughs> Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a brief history of time, aka the East series. <laughs> <laughs> Only slightly less interesting than the company's history itself. Man, no, like we skipped over the most interesting part of the company's history at that yeah. point. Cause we skipped over the part where they couldn't make East for themselves because they had literally lost so many employees. <sighs> but yeah, that's that's East. If you want further clarification, please ask. We saving or are we moving on to? Yeah, yeah let's move on.
Alright, so our next question also from Budai is, has game length and backlogs diminished replayability as an important feature? How important do you think it is compared to now, non-RPGs also considered? Um, I think the, the concept of a backlog might be a little overblown, because the number of people that have large backlogs is probably smaller than we generally think. It's, it's limited to enthusiasts. Yeah. Uh, not to mention, probably a lot don't have massive backlogs. Um, but I think replayability is definitely an important factor. Um, and I think that helps a lot in terms of like consumer confidence. Because, you know, we've had a lot of uh, duds as far as like replayability. Trying to I feel think like, of a specific example. I feel like nowadays developers don't even term it as replayability. They think of it internally as like stickiness. Like right, how much right. do you just keep coming back to it? Like clearly like destiny is stuck to you. Uh yes. Yes, and a lot of that just has to do with making a game that is fun to keep playing. And uh and a lot of that is just because it's a good multiplayer shooter more than anything else. Yeah, um, but it also sticks to you because you still have that, like, like it's not just the multiplayer, but, like, you're invested in that character, so it creates that replayability in both Sure, parties. sure. And so I think that's, in a sense, why things are important, because um, we've there's been a lot of, like, bad games over the year where over the years where like a, maybe a company will sell like a multiplayer focused game without a ton of content at full price or like a short single player game. I'm thinking of a, what was that Sony game that came Is it out? Mag? No, it, it, it was a PS4 game not to, it may have come out this year. The Order? Yes. Yeah, did that even have multiplayer? I don't think so, but I'm thinking of something that like a, a relatively short single player experience yeah, like you, you, they produced a short, unmemorable single-player game, and then that was yeah. basically it. You sort of felt knocked off. So I think, in a sense, that's that is what makes replayability important: is uh, people want value from their money. People don't want to spend sixty dollars on something that only lasts as long as a film. Exactly. Uh, but I don't think there's a ton of correlation as far as backlog because if you're buying a bunch of a bunch of games that you think are cool you think are cool and you're going to try and play them regardless of the amount of replayability they have or anything like that it may make take it take make bleh, that may make it take longer to actually get to all those games but i don't think that has any effect like on what you're purchasing or how you handle the yeah. backlog. I don't feel like enthusiasts that buy a lot of games worry that much about replayability. Yeah. Like, the sort of person that's concerned about having a backlog isn't concerned about replaying. Exactly. At least not usually. Yeah. Whereas, for me, it's just, like, replay. explicit replayability for me has never really had as much to do with, like, can I go through it in a different way again? It's like, oh, man, I just really want to re-experience that. Yeah. So that's why... And so that's why I have like the infamous in my personal memory two weeks of replaying Persona Four two, like I played Persona Four twice in two weeks. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> From beginning to end, wow! Like all bonus dungeons. One of those I think was a full S Link run. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Like, that was 
that, like, I had just gotten golden. I was basically done for the semester, but I couldn't go home yet, so I just sort of, like... Played a lot uh, of Persona. Yeah, like, I think my clock read, like, 150 hours by the time I was done. <laughs> like, it was an unhealthy amount of time spent playing that game, and, like, I had already played through it twice on PS2. I didn't care. <laughs> Like, just the fact that it was good mattered more to me. So, like, I don't feel like backlog diminished replayability. It was just like, you know, yeah. replayability was in how much I wanted to experience the game more once I was done with it. Yeah. I think uh, one aspect of this he may be trying to ask in this question, though, is um, basically the idea is there's a ton of games, so does that reduce the importance of, like, developers making a game that's relatively replayable, and I don't think that's the case at all. Yeah, like, you know, you get the, like, people that aren't, like, gaming as a primary hobby, like, you know, they buy five or six games a year tops, and, like, they play them over, like, you know, they're usually games with giant multiplayer components, because you yeah. finish the single player, and then you can play the multiplayer whenever you have a free uh, night or weekend or whatever, and not feel like you need to spend that much, like, you know, they play it until they got the next edition or don't feel like playing it anymore yeah like, like that's why games like fallout or skyrim are sticky because it's like you keep sort of coming back to it because oh well i got some free time and there's no real commitment to playing it the same way or like a specific way of playing it you know yeah and that's why a lot of the older say call of duty games still have pretty high online populations it's just you know i like this game i can keep playing it there you go yeah, like, okay, Modern Warfare 3 came out, but I still prefer playing Modern Warfare 2. I'll just yeah. keep playing Modern Warfare 2. But it's, it's, I think, like, stickiness is still a, a pretty big selling factor. And it's definitely your... something publishers look for, because, like, sure. I, I was just looking at statements about uh, Rainbow Six Siege, which just came out, and what uh, Yves Guillemot, the... Uh, CEO of Ubisoft was saying was that they expected to ultimately outsell Far Cry 4, which it's it's not on the way to doing that. But uh, <laughs> uh, like because they're going to ju like they're just saying we're going to keep producing updates and content for this. We're just going to keep doing it, and like the the hope is that there will be long li long tail lifetime sales for it. Hopefully there are because it seems like it's got some interesting ideas, but. Uh... You know, a bad launch can do a lot of damage, and it did not have a good launch. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're, like, it's... Trust loss not easily regained. No. But yes. Like, I, mean, I mean, like, the, the Xbox One is a perfectly fine system now that basically functions exactly like a PS4, but it's still the laughing stock that, like, look at what they tried to do with used games. Yeah. And still Press lost is not easily regained. Forever the X-Bone. Yep. I just call it that because it's easier at this point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think the important thing to hear is that, yeah, replayability is still definitely something that's important. Uh, yeah. Maybe not... Although not necessarily replaying a single-player experience over and over yeah. so much as, like, hey, just, there's a lot of content. Yeah. Just like... To use the word again, a sticky experience, like something like Destiny, like 
Not like that's the ultimate goal of MMOs or Destiny or like probably the Division, yeah. Rainbow Six Siege, competitive shooters, competitive multiplayer games, that sort of thing. Yeah, and honestly, I think shooters kind of have stickiness down to a science at this point. At least, the yeah. Although there's still ways to to bungle it out of launch. I mean, remember sure. how people were really excited for Evolve early last year? <laughs> like people were really excited yeah. for that. They like. They produced so many skin packs that people were like, man, they are just going to nickel and dime us to death once they get to content we actually care about, and then no one played it. Like, no one was willing to trust it after that. <laughs> Whoops. There is that There is that certain, like, you need to be timing content releases to when people are getting tired of it, not when people are first seeing it. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> uh, but I think, I think this is a pretty interesting topic, especially as far as RPGs go. Um... With lots of lots more multiplayer RPGs than there have been in the past, and talking about the division and destiny, a lot more mixing with other types of genres. Um, so yeah, um, honestly, if you just make a good game, a really good game, then that will make it replayable on its own. <laughs> yeah, like you just like. If you make a good game that has at least a couple permutations, people will keep going back to it because they just want to have it again. Yeah. Like, you know, there's... Like... You see all those games that get HD remastered and people complain, like, I'm sick of... Like, I don't want to play these old games again. But, like, they they keep selling because people want to play them again. Yeah. Like, and that's the, it's the same principle. It's like... It, it wasn't necessarily that it had more content that they'd just never seen before. It's just like, man, I can I can play that again. I can relive that experience. Yeah. Like, that that brings people back. That creates replayability. And, like, that, like, I don't think that, like, you know. I, I guess I don't know where I'm going with this other, <laughs> like... Replayability was never like cre- designing games to be replayable to me was always more a question of designing games that were fun to play more than once. Right. Whether that was because they were just such a good experience or because they had infinite permutations, like a multiplayer game. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. That's that's really the uh, very long and sadly not much short of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Shall we move on? Yeah. Let's head off. All right. So let's move on to our next question, which is from the Walken dude. Not Christopher Walken. Not Christopher Walken. He says, <laughs> first off, no, I'm not Christopher Walken, just a Stephen King fan who walks a lot. Sounds fair. Yeah. I had the exact same experience of realizing just how many Bowie songs I loved. So what was Bowie's greatest influence on RPGs? And Character designs. Yeah. <laughs> like... Look at Ziggy. Uh, look at Ziggy Stardust. Look at Final look, Fantasy's yeah. early art. Boom. Honestly, look at half of Final Fantasy's villains up yeah. to like Kefka Palazzo. Seriously. <laughs> Creepy white face guy with red face paint and blonde hair. 
That's uh, uh, like, yeah, I, I think Amano actually illustrated something that Bowie was in. I think he drew Bowie a few times. Like, not e- I'm not even snarking. Like, he literally drew Bowie a few times. So I, I think that kind of just answers the question right there, because that's a pretty big influence. Uh, let's see. I think he recently drew him, too. Uh, yeah, like, before he died, as well as recently. Like, he apparently recently... Yeah, yeah, like, heavens. Yeah, Return of Thin White Duke. Wow, there's a lot of... Yeah. Uh... Yeah, fantasy art. Yeah, there was also a project involving Neo. This project involved David Bowie, Yoshitaka Amano, and Neo Gaiman. Think about that. Think about how rad that sounds. Wow, that's pretty rad. Take us. Okay. Yeah, in two thousand four. Interesting. Yeah, it's super weird. Like, but yeah, no. Like, it it would be hard to make a claim that Amano was not. Uh, Who's not influenced just by Bowie's sense of style. Then again, you know, Bowie's sense of style is what, you know, made it acceptable to, you know... Well, not really acceptable, but, like, there was a certain coolness to, like, dude in makeup. Yeah. Which, you know... It's pretty standard nowadays. It's pretty standard nowadays. Like, you know, most of Amano's designs are pale blonde dudes in makeup. (laughs) Uh... And that that is a style that is really, really Bowie. Yeah. So, you know. It would be, uh, I would say that, like, given how much Amano and and Final Fantasy ended up influencing other games, like, you know, there's a really heavy stylistic debt that traces its lineage, however twisted, back to Bowie. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the second half of the question, would a Labyrinth RPG work? Yes. Yes, Uh, yes, it would. Yeah. Give me, give me the, the Henson shop. Give me the Henson shop creatures as well. Yeah, that would be pretty sweet. Yeah, man, I'd play that. Yeah. Why am I not playing that? Why am I not playing that right now? <laughs> Why was that not made? Can somebody make this? Can we go back in time and make this? <laughs> Gotta go back in time. Can we go back in time and and finish that project that involved Amano play Amano Gaiman and. Frickin' Bowie, that sounds amazing. Yeah, what was that? I'm lo- I'm looking into it because like that's a crazy concept, but like it seems like the kind of thing that would fit together well. It does. Let's see, okay, 2004 unlikely pairings. Uh, story called the Thin White Duke, a sci-fi reimagining uh, of one of Bowie's older stage personas. Hmm. Uh, so the Chicago Tribune explains in an interview with Gaiman from last week the story was written in two parts with only the first featuring Amano's work that originally been drawn for a separate magazine feature it was written in two parts, I finished it for this book the first part was with Yo- artist Yoshitaka Amano who was commissioned to do pictures for a magazine called V his images were Bowie and Bowie's wife, the model Iman as uh, sci-fi characters and I was asked to write a story so it became about Bowie and Iman in, their f- in this future New York then White Duke. Oh, it is finished. It's one. Of, it's one of his short stories. A short yeah. story collection called Trigger Warning. I need to go find that. Yeah. Like I'm that's gonna. Pretty cool. Yeah. No. That that sounds uh, right up my alley. 
The only thing that could make it more perfect is if Bowie had written an album to go with it. <laughs> not like there was probably not at least like five songs that he wrote that were appropriate for entirely different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> you could... I'm sorry. Oh, Lay it on me, man. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So... Yeah, give me the Labyrinth RPG, and I'm going to go track down a copy of Trigger Warning. Yeah. Someone go make the Labyrinth RPG. Fill it with ridiculous Muppets. <laughs> um, Alright. I'm just going to jump into the next uh, Lol Whoops question. Since yeah, the we Lol Whoops collage. We were already talking about Final Fantasy, and this is related. Uh, blue mages suck. Why yeah. do they never have any easy way of getting all the skills? Why are most of the skills useless anyway? Strago was interesting, but blue mages generally are crappy characters. Quinn or whatever, yeah, he, she, it sucks. Stop making bad blue mages, Granix. Listen, Strago was more than interesting. That is completely unfair. He had some awesome I played the abilities. Game, I played the game less than a year ago, and I don't remember how you get lores. Wow. I, I, I did not use lores. I don't remember how you get them. It was the same way as every other game. They have to be used on you. Oh, okay. I figured there was some other thing about no. them. Like, I, I thought that he could like learn them by like staring at an enemy or whatever. No, I don't. I think I think it was that he didn't have to be hit by them. Ah, uh, yeah. He just had to be in the same battle as them. Yes. Granted, there's kind of two blue mages in that game, because there's also Gao, who's doing kind of the same shtick, except you can't control him, because he's also a berserker. Yeah, that, that was kind of more interesting, though, since it wasn't... There was, the rages? Yeah. Well, it, it's just, it wasn't like a, I want to say, limited set of things. Like, eh, it was, oh, well, it like, can become you, There was one for, like, and... every freaking thing in the game. Yeah. Like, everything would find its way to the belt, and then, like, you'd spend two hours getting really irritated that you weren't finding the thing you wanted, because the belt now had every freaking enemy in the game. Yes, I, I, I guess that's the how they're both annoying, is just trying to get the good ones. Yeah, like, well, that's the thing, is that there's always, like, some crazy condition on it, like, uh, they have to get hit by it, is usually what happens, like, it's not enough for them to see it, they have to be hit with it. And that's really irritating, especially when you get things in, like, FF5 where it's, like, you have to get hit by level 5 death. So, like, if you get hit by it, but you can't die in the process. So, like, if you get hit by it, and then, uh, but you're in a level that's a multiple of 5, it's like, oh, well then. <laughs> uh, I feel like the best way to get an appreciation for blue magic is to en end up rolling a blue mage in a 4-job fiesta. But yeah. <laughs> But, like, the thing about it is that, like, for some games, they really are useless, but, like, a big problem is that they're always based around being enemy skills, and enemy skills aren't balanced for player use. Yeah. <sighs> so, like, occasionally you'll find enemy skills that are good. Like, Mighty Guard's always good. Oh, yeah. Like, being able to cast regen, uh, protect, and shell on every single character, priceless. Pretty, pretty good. <laughs> like, that's, that's crazy. Um... Especially in like FF7, where all three of those are really broken skills. Yeah, I remember it's it's translated as big guard in FF7, but like uh, big guard's crazy because like regen is the strongest it's ever been in Final Fantasy in FF7, uh, and and uh, 
barrier slash M barrier, aka protect and shell, both have meters on them that tell you when they're about to run out, which is really useful. <laughs> but like, like that—that's kind of the thing, though, is that like that—that's a super uh, in in that game. Like, you have to contrive really hard to get a big guard cast on you. You have to use the manipulate materia to manipulate an enemy into doing it, or like. <laughs> Getting uh, any of Quinna's blue magic requires you to sit there and, like, whittle something down without killing it until it hits the arbitrary threshold where Quinna can actually eat it. <laughs> and every time she can't eat it, she's just wasting a turn. <laughs> he, she, it, I, I do not, like, the game does not ever settle on what Quinna's gender is. But, uh, like, uh... And, you know, that's that's always the thing, is that, like, they're not balanced for player use, so the best... The most irritating spells when they're used on you never really uh, have a turnabout-is-fair-play moment. Like, FF7, the other good ones I can think of are, like, Trine and Aqualung are both pretty decent. Yeah. And pro probably a couple others I'm forgetting, but, like... Uh, FF5 has a lot of good ones, because you can get things like level 4 Flare or level 2 Old. Uh, level too old. Yeah, you're old now. <laughs> Take that. Level too old is nasty though, because it works every other level. It's super nasty. But get old. Uh, yeah, get old forever. Um, no one's gonna get what, what song I just referenced. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like level too old. Uh, like FF5 has a lot of good ones that like really shine in a four job BS to play through, which is fine because four job BS is the most fun way to play FF5. Yeah, it really is. Forces you to mess around with some jobs you may not have tried otherwise. Yeah, pretty fun. I sure wouldn't have spent the entire first. I sure wouldn't have played the entire game without any magic ever if I hadn't <laughs> forced to last time. But hey, I still had chemists, so like go. the end of the game was the uh, breeze. Oh, chemists! That's another one that's like chemists are like the item are, are the item blue mage, where it's just like they're they're they seem useless unless you're willing to put a lot of time into them. In which at which point you realize that they're ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> like oh, the chemist can solve like if there is a if if Final Fantasy is a math problem, a chemist is X. <laughs> where the chemist can be whatever you need it to be. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, so blue mages are always, because their skill sets, if they're uh, treated with any... If they're as useful as their skill... If their skill set's as useful as it should be, the skill set is hard to get. If the skill set is easy to get, then their skill set is useless. Yeah. And that's their attempt to balance it, but it's it's broken for the same reason that death spells are broken, because if the death spell worked as well as you would hope it would, then there would be no other game. <laughs> uh, and let's just polish this off with Low Whoops' other question. Sure. Everyone talks about Aerith slash Aerith dying. Spoilers! Oh, man. I'd love to meet a person that, did, that knew about FF7 but did not know about that yet. I want to meet this anthropological study. Uh, there's a big important scene, but there have been plenty of plot-induced deaths in RPGs. What was the worst, dumbest, most unnecessary death? Or maybe more than just one? Mm, worst. 
I feel like in terms of like failed narrative impact, the only one I can the the first thing I think of is have you ever played uh, okay, big blanket spoilers on everything we're going to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, yeah. if you don't want to get spoiled, just skip the rest of the podcast. <laughs> um uh the if you if anyone ever played uh Jade Empire, uh Sagacious Zoo gets into a big tussle with Death's Hand near the end of that game and apparently dies. His death is such a, a footnote. Like, it happens, and it happens so quickly with so little buildup. He, like, he leaves for a dungeon, then he, like, oh, I'm gonna kill Death's Hand while we're here. And then, like, he gets, I think he gets, like, crushed under a rock or something. <laughs> and it's so, like, there's so little buildup to it and so little like sense like it adds so little to the narrative that it's probably the worst in my book just because of how dumb it is <laughs> like there's no n- none of the characters really react to oh no sagacious zoo died it's just like oh I guess I guess we'll move on now oh that guy died well that's the thing except no one even brings up that he died <laughs> he's just like because your character like right after that has a fake death and like everyone's too concerned about that no one gives a crap about the fact that Sagacious Zoo just died <laughs> uh, but the, like that's my number one and I've got a few others that are like bad but uh, that's the number one and like maybe I'll list off some other ones if you uh... I'm think- kind of thinking of one also in a Bioware game um... and that's uh, Knights of the Old Republic Oh man! And it's not. It's when the uh, so the whole Jedi Council basically gets blown up. Yeah. And I never and I never feel like it. It it never feels like that has much of an impact on anything. Did that happen in Kotor One? I thought that was Kotor Two. No, that happened in Kotor One. Like, because I remember, like, because. In KOTOR 2, you spend the entire game looking for the remnants of the Jedi Council. Uh. Oh, wait, no, like, yeah, because Dantooine gets, like, destroyed. <laughs> but then, like, you spend the rev... Like, the, the irony is you spend the remnants of KOTOR... You spend most of KOTOR 2 looking for the remnants of it, and then at the end, they just get killed. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, Kreia comes in and just murders all of them. Well, that's and it's like horrifying. Yeah, and it's just like that. That's kind of a non-scene too, but it's less of a non-scene because like she's coming in to kill them because they're trying to kill you, and then she at the same time unmasks herself as the villain anyway. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, hey guys, remember spoilers. Yeah, spoilers, uh, spoilers. But yeah, like the 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 pointless death. So nice, they did it twice. Yeah. But like like Kotor one at the end, you see that large portions of the council are there because you meet Vrook, who's like a Yoda person. But uh, what is Yoda species even called? I don't think it has a name. I don't know. I'm reminded of when I started making a character in Dragon Ball Xenoverse, and it's the name of Frieza's race was just Frieza race. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, I'm trying to think of like other bad ones. Uh, well, I'm thinking of. I know. I'm thinking of Force Awakens while we're still talking about Star Wars. Uh, and again, spoilers. Spoilers. This is No, the thing you're thinking of is good, though. Is it? Like, I, I assume you're talking about the end... Well, one, we're talking about a movie now. Yeah, that's true. That, but everyone's heard the end of this. Okay. You, you're talking about Han, right? No, I'm talking about the Republic being blown up. 
Oh, yeah, well, that's just it. That's like Alderaan getting blown up. It's just a stake setter. True, it just felt a little... I don't know. It's it was it wasn't really a big complaint for me when I saw the movie. Anyway, I've seen like... people get really bent out of shape out of it, and it's like, dude, I get it, kind of, but at the same time, like, it's just setting the stakes, man. That's just yeah. how they work. And it's a movie, like, and you can only do so much things. So yeah, many no, things, I thought, so. at first I thought you were gonna complain about Han's death, and I was just no, gonna no, like order no. you through Skype. Uh, no, that was I thought that was done perfectly. Yeah, no, like, that's, a, that's think, a fantastic scene. I don't think I would have changed anything about that scene. Yeah, same. Like, the whole the bridge, the way all the other characters are looking at But let's on, go back to spoiling just, RPGs. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> trying to think of other ones. When I went back and replayed ones. it, I couldn't stop laughing at Lavitz's death in Legend of Dragoon. <laughs> Oh man, it's a super silly scene. Also, you can't get over it. when when you're an adult you, and you go back and play it. You can't get over the fact that his name is Lavitz Slambert. <laughs> Slambert's an amazing name. <laughs> uh, um, but that's a super silly scene that like is like everything about the way that it's staged is silly and ridiculous. <laughs> there's there's a weird death scene in uh, Resonance of Fate. Oh man, yeah. Do you, do you remember this? I think I remember most of this. Resonance of Fate is a game that tells its story in a str- in a strange fashion. Yeah, so it, it's like that weird, uh, uh, rotund character. I guess would be a good way. Yeah, to put it. and he like actually dies, and it's like what? Yeah. So so if you haven't played Resonance of Fate. We're gonna spoil something for you, but it's not really important because well, the... we were already spoiling all of these. So yeah, again. that's true. Okay, but. So in that game, most of the characters, unless they're like born outside of the tower the game takes place in, have like a crystal thing that if it shatters, basically they die. Yeah, and like the 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 thing about it is that this like this time bomb for you, no one no, like most people can never find theirs. Right. Um. So basically, I don't remember if you were intending to find this guy's crystal. I think you were trying to Yeah, I remember him you do a you one. do a quest where you find his crystal. Okay. Like but, that's one of the chapters of the game. But basically he puts it on a ring and he punches somebody with it. <laughs> he punches someone with the ring and the crystal in the ring breaks and he dies. <laughs> and, and and I bring this up here because it's kinda less impactful because it's pretty funny. In a way, like it's, but it's also it's, sad. Like it's, darkly, it's it's vaguely darkly comic because like there's no way to argue that that wasn't his own dang fault. Yeah, because he put it in a ring and then <laughs> punched someone, and it's like, what were you expecting? <laughs> and like the other thing that makes it weird is that like it does play it for tragedy and it does kind of work, but the guy is also like, if you've ever seen what what Japanese nerd looks like. This guy is Japanese nerd. Like, he is the every Japanese nerd stereotype, except that his hair doesn't happen to be black. Like, he's he's got the ridiculous precise bowl cut that you often see with, like, Japanese nerd. He's fat and, like, really awkward. And, like, like everything about him is the Japanese conception of what is the nerdiest nerd that, is, that has ever nerded. And, yep. like... 
but you know he's like he's not supposed to be a bad guy he's kind of weird he's kind of creepy but he's supposed to be kind of a night like he's not he's not a dick the guy he was punching was like i i I'm trying to remember why he's punching them, but, like, the reason he's punching them is supposed to be at least mildly sympathetic. And, like, he punches them, and, like, he shatters his crystal and dies. I think and he, so really... I think he's trying to defend Leanne or something. I, yeah, I he's, like, trying to defend Leanne because he's, like, got a crush on her because nerd. Yeah. And, like, he, he gets himself killed. Yeah. And it's just... It's so strange. Like, because the premise of how that death happens is so like contextual to the universe and it, it's just so weird like yeah. I wouldn't even call it bottom I wouldn't even call it terrible because the scene's not awful it's just so weird Yeah, like it might be the weirdest death scene I've ever seen <laughs> like it just happens um that's probably another one uh, going outside the realm of RPGs, at the end of Super Mario Sunshine, Mario's water pack dies. It's the dumbest thing you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> I don't remember why they treat it like a water pack just died. <laughs> oh man, if we're if we're gonna go to non RPGs, can I talk about Halo Four? Oh man, yeah, go ahead. Which, um, well, okay, I'm not gonna say anything about five, but. Uh, so at the end of Halo 4, Cortana, quote-unquote, dies. But the whole thing is so strange, because somehow she... It makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, it makes no sense. All of a sudden, she can make a force field and save your life, and... But somehow what? that will kill her. <laughs> what? <laughs> AI is... AI, AIs are not subject to the same kind of limitations that humans are. That's not how that works. <laughs> Like, the, you already had a decent, like, she's going to die narrative running up with, like, AIs go crazy after a long yeah. enough period of time. But you had to set up this weird heroic sacrifice that doesn't make any sense at all. Just, just would, would, would it have killed you to just stay with rampancy? Would, would, would it have been that hard? Yes. I I, I, they've I decided that yes. I, okay. Uh, sh shooters really like these kinds of things. I remember, like... Spoilers for Gears of War, Dom dies near the end, and it's just, like, the craziest, like, suicide I've ever seen. But, yeah, like... Was that the end of the first one, or is that the end of three? That's the end of three. Okay, that's why I don't remember it. Yeah. Like, spoilers in case you cared about the riveting... The riveting, uh... Gears of War plot line. Um, I'm trying to remember. Like, RPGs used to do these, like, once a game, because, like... I guess if we want to put another silly one, like, every death in FF4 is silly in retrospect. Yeah. And and what makes it weirder is that by the time you get to Tella, you've seen several characters die and come back, so it doesn't quite work when he dies. It's <laughs> no. like, they, they do try to show that, like, okay, he's really, really dead. You just saw his sprite flicker and fade away, but it's like, people have recovered from much less insane things than what just killed him, <laughs> so... Like... Like, Sid literally jumps off of an airship clutching a bomb and dies. And still gets gets away with a couple of weeks in bed. <laughs> like, if if you think, like... If you've ever argued that FF7's death was... Uh, death was silly. Frickin'. Ugh. I, I do... Uh, I think, in, in one case, I'll, I'll bring up the absence of a death... The, like, half the Earth's, like, two-thirds of the Earth's population is freaking destroyed. 
in FF6, and I think there's only one unaccounted for named character from the first part that's gone. <laughs> like, Bannon is the only one that you could reasonably infer died from that. Yeah. Every other named character is still alive. <laughs> it was not accounted for with a death on screen. It's true. And it's like, you would think someone would have died. Some human being would have died in this, but no. And I get why, but it's still really strange. Well, the, the Emperor died. Yeah, the Emperor is... dies while, when you watch Kefka <laughs> kill him. Which is still a really uh, cool scene. Yeah, no, it's a cool scene. Emperor is a weird dog man. I don't quite understand that. <laughs> uh, weird pixel art. Yeah, it's 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 Amano's art was not meant to be pixelized and yeah. framing that small. Um, but uh, like weird Emperor Dogman. Um, but yeah, and like the only other death in that game is Sid. Maybe. Only, only, if you're a, only if you're a monster, jeez. Yeah, I, 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 like when I played the game, I made because I, I was actually being contrarian because like <laughs> people spent years telling me that like, oh well, the scene's way better if Les tries to commit suicide, and I'm like, screw you, people, I'm just gonna save Sid. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like okay, because like the the game is full of like, like her. Uh, like, her suicide, her, like, survival is a contrived coincidence anyway, because, like, you see Locke's bandana, and it's like, oh, I guess I'll go build a raft. Yeah. <laughs> or at least find out that a raft was built. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and, like... I, I'm trying to think of other ones. Like, these used to be really common, but, like, they've, they've kind of... The, the idea has sort of... Uh, has sort of died... Uh, I guess uh, Chrono Cross, the time where like it pretends like you stab Sid, uh, stab kid to death. Yeah, that scene is baffling, and every scene before it is baffling, <laughs> and every single scene after it is baffling. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that so is that Chrono Cross sucks. Um, <laughs> that was really just an excuse to take a dig at Chrono Cross. Um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm racking my brain for, uh, oh, um, this is, this is another one, uh, I feel like this one is an affecting scene if you don't get the good ending, and that's Grameo in Suicoden 1. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it, I, I'm not arguing that his revival undercuts it, because it's like, you know, whatever, it's, it's your reward. My argument is that what undercuts it is that when he comes back to life, the first thing he's like is, where's the stew? <laughs> <laughs> like, apparently, when Gremio died, like, apparently there's two options for what happened here. Gremio's brain is just permanently set to, I need to be making stew for the young master. Or when Gremio died, he was thinking about stew. <laughs> Take your pick, because neither makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but otherwise, like, the death itself is actually a really good scene. Spoilers for Suicoden 1, you were warned. <laughs> Go play Suicoden 1, it's really good. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think I've run myself out of deaths that uh, spoke to me in any real fashion. 
Can you think of any good ones? Like, really good ones? Oh, Romeo is a good one if you're not thinking about the fact that he apparently died thinking about Stu. <laughs> um, uh, like... <sighs> Xenoblade, spoilers, has one, even though, a really good one, even though it turns out that it, it wasn't at all. Uh, talking about the... Just, just go ahead. I'm talking about, uh, I forget her name. What's her name? Fiora? Yeah. Yeah, I figured you were talking about Fiora. Yeah, it's like a really good scene, and it drives the whole story. I feel like the real, I feel like the real spoiler there is that you spoiled the fact that she comes back. Yes. Yes, because, yes, yes. Because, because yeah, that happens really like early on. three minutes into the game. Yeah. But, but she's had just enough characterization by that point, and the game fakes you out by the virtue of the fact that you can see equipment for her that's better than what you've got. <laughs> I just think that that's a really well-done scene, to the yeah, no. and it drives so much of the plot to to the point that when she comes back, it... You actually it, are really happy to see her again. Yeah. yeah. That game is just superbly done in general. I love that game. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if there are any death scenes in the earlier Xeno games, like... The, pl- the the gameplay died in Xenogears. I was sad when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist that joke. Well played. Uh, 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 let's see. Um, there's a death in Star Ocean 2 that works pretty well if you played Star Ocean 1. Uh... Like, th- this was something I couldn't appreciate when the game first came out. When the PSP remakes of Star Ocean 1 and 2 came out, I actually grew an appreciation for this. Which is that in Star Ocean 1, you- your four main characters are like uh, Roddick... Uh, uh, I forget what his like childhood friend's name is. Uh, Ilya or Mil. I can't remember her name precisely either. I I only ever played Star Ocean First Departure once. It was a good game, but I I just never got around to it a second time. Uh, and uh, Ronix, and uh, Ronix is basically like you're sort of he 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 looks a lot like Spock. Um, <laughs> in the first game, he looks a hell of like Spock. In in Star Ocean Two, he looks way less like Spock. But in Star Ocean First Departure, he's he's Spock looking as heck. But um. He he's sort of like your he, he's one of your guys. He's intelligent and interest like he's a he's a good character and I like him. And then in Star Ocean Two, you're playing one of your party members that you have to have is his kid Claude. And like halfway through the game, <clears throat> both of those char- both of the primary characters suffer a major loss because the uh, because Reyna like her planet gets blown up. And in the process of blowing up her planet, the spaceship that is that Ronix has like commandeered to search for Claude uh, gets destroyed, and Ronix dies in that uh, exchange. Hmm. And like in, in retrospect, like having the context of playing Star Ocean One, it's like no, like I feel like that helps a lot. Is if you're like they die in a game like, after they've been introduced. Because it's much easier to kill off a character that you've just introduced. But when you've got continuity of, like, I had, like, this character was here before and they're gone now. Like, that actually does, 
you know, it makes it feel less cheap. Yeah. But, like, since most RPGs end up in the Final Fantasy mold, where, like, uh, they're at the very least so far apart from each other that, like, no one involved would ever possibly be alive, uh, you you don't get that as much in RPGs. Can you can you think of any? Um, I don't think so. Yeah. So. I think some of the hey, two Triace games got mentioned. Yeah, I think some of the best for me have to be in some of the Mass Effect games, mostly because. Oh yeah, like I ne- I never got those, so I never think of them. But if you get them. Yeah. Mostly because, hey, they often happen because of your own negligence. Like, uh, yeah, like you screwed up. <laughs> like, yeah. look what you caused. Yes, and I, I, yeah, yeah, Jack. I did not have Jack in Mass Effect Three. <laughs> yeah, and that's a shame because her subplot's really good. Oh, yeah. It, um, really should have bought that ship upgrade, huh? <laughs> yeah, nice job on that one. <laughs> Uh, I did replay the final mission a few times to get to the point where no one else died, at least. Yeah, like, you you need to be careful about how you structure that. Oh, no, actually, you know what? I may have... I may have specifically engineered things so that, uh... Shoot, what's that female human that's kind of a jerk? What the heck was her name? There's a few of those that could be. The one that was, like, xenophobic... Oh, the uh, Ashley and Mass yeah. Effect 1. Yeah, so I engineered things that she did not survive that, that game, I that, believe. That one actually brings up an interesting point, because uh, there's data buried in Mass Effect 1 that made it clear that there was a way to uh, save both uh, both Caden and Ashley in Mass Effect 1 at one point. Interesting. And that, 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 that method was cut, and we don't actually know what that method was, only... That there's dialogue that includes both Caden and Ashley commenting on the stunt you pulled on Vermeer. <laughs> but uh, in terms of deaths that are, for all intents and purposes, unavoidable, even for... Like, th- this one was a gut punch because the game... Like, if you're playing the game as a good guy, you can't prevent this one. Uh, and that's Morden in yeah. Mass Effect 3. Yeah. That one's... Like, there's several ways for Morden to die... And there, there is a way for him to survive, but it's kind of like it requires you to con- pass some persuasion checks, and it's it requires you to have killed Rex, which you know, nice what? job, Dick. <laughs> you monster! <laughs> like you don't get the perfect world. There is no perfect world where both Rex and uh, and Morden can survive Mass Effect Three, but uh, in uh, but. Like Morden's death is really tragic any any way you look at it. Like if you're if you're Paragon, he dies and he's like calling back to one of the best little bits of dialogue that he had in Mass Effect Two and like he's you know, he's nobly sacrificing himself to fix something that he thinks was his biggest mistake. And like if you're a renegade dick, you can shoot him. And that one's really just awful to watch like I saw that one. like why do this why would you ever engineer this situation yeah speaking of oh. off, speaking of awful there's one where you can let a whole race of people die and then watch the one last member of the race jump off a cliff 
Was... Oh man, yeah, I never, I never got the bad ending to the Rhinoc contact. <laughs> oh yeah. man, yeah, that one's sad. Yeah, that one's really sad. I could never do that one. I, I, that whole, that whole option, I think, is sad. Unless obviously you're, you can have enough to not have to make the to, choice. To make choice, because like... yeah, because then don't they just have to like gun down Legion or? Or something like that. I just remember. yeah, you know, like you end up having to kill Legion, and yeah, you end up yeah, it, like it destroys the Geth as a sentient. Yeah, and it, both of them are both of those options are obviously horribly depressing. Yeah, because like they're basically Tally and Legion are like my two favorite Mass Effect two characters. So yeah. like, and like Legion, there. That's the other thing is that there's no way to get through Mass Effect three with Legion alive. Yeah. Like, he will either kill himself uh, making sure that the rest of the Geth can be uh, can be properly uh, sentient, or, or he can uh, get killed uh, if you side with the uh, Quarians. But no, I couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't kill Tally. She was my romance option. Yeah. Can't do that. That would be terrible. Well, she was my romance option in two, at least. You didn't take her into three? You monster. No, I, I switched back to, uh, what's her name, for continuity's sake. Gross. Well, <laughs> it's just, it seemed like the thing to do. It's gross. Go to your room and think about what you've done. Yeah. <laughs> think about what you've done. Uh... Man, I remember when that game came out and there was that bug in the ending that, like, it would always show Liara's face instead of, like, it was supposed to show, like, whoever your love interest was, but it always showed Liara's. (laughs) (laughs) When you're, like, flashing through, when, like, everyone's faces are flashing through Shepard's mind at the end. (laughs) But, yeah, no, like... Ugh. Man. That sure was a game hurt by its last five minutes. Mass Effect? Yeah, Mass Effect 3. Yeah, well. But we've we've pontificated a long time about dead characters, and now I'm sad. <laughs> oh, hey, speaking of dead characters, Shepard, dead. Shut up. <laughs> Maybe. Shut up. <laughs> it, 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 well... And the, like, the worst of those endings is the only one where there's like a hint that he or she what? is not dead. That's not the worst. I mean, uh, everything we... about Synthesis is definitively the creepiest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's right. It's the one where you destroy all the all the mechanical life. Yeah, which is awful too, and doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. I want to rant about Mass Effect Three unless uh, Mass Effect Three's ending, unless someone asks about it. <laughs> All right. Here's the preview. Mass Effect 3's ending sucks. <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. But the game is awesome, so don't let I that stop I remember you here. kind of being okay with it, and then I ranted about it for like an hour. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. The, the thing I is, know that happened with at least one friend, where they were like, I was yeah, fine with it, and was, then you kept ranting about it, and now I hate it too. It wasn't because you ranted about it. I, I watched some other stuff too. You sat down and thought about it for yeah. a second. You were like, wait a minute, well, that was dumb. <laughs> I think part of the thing is, I don't think there's any way, any way to, I don't know, and 
what am I trying to say? I don't think there's... You don't think there's a good ending to that story? Yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to say. I don't think there's any ending that would have been truly satisfying, so I was just looking for closure, I guess. I, I think that there are... I, I don't think that there are... I, I think that you have a point that, like, any ending would be at least somewhat anticlimactic, but here's my response. That doesn't mean that there aren't way better endings than the one they went with. Oh, for sure. For sure. Because that ending made anti-sense. Yeah. And I, I, I'm going to shut up about this unless and until someone questions us about it. <laughs> at this point, they will get a three-hour-long podcast. <laughs> I, I think they probably went for too definitive an ending. Like, this sh- this should have been. Obviously, they're going to do more Mass Effect games, so they they responded to that ending the most logical way they could, and just set it as far away in time and place as they could. But yeah, I, but, I feel I like the know. the big problem was that like the ending needed to tie everything into a weird bow, and like at that point, it, they, there was no real way to do that. <laughs> But also, they only had like five minutes to do it, and yeah. they decided that they didn't want the uh, they didn't want the frickin' conduit to just emit a reaper killing pulse or something. So instead, they decided that it needed to do three completely insane things. <laughs> well, I definitely think the reaper killing pulse may have been a little underwhelmed. Well, I, I don't want to say that. That would have, I think, that would have been a definitive enough ending for this game, and left plenty of questions that could have been answered in future games. Yeah. And like future games and other media, and that would have been that would have been great. And and it also would have explained why they why the people making the conduit every freaking cycle were freaking making it. Yeah. Because what it does doesn't make any sense. No. But I'll rant about this more properly if someone asks. You you can almost hear the request in my voice, but someone asked about this, so I can rant about it properly. Uh, you know, the, worst, the worst huh? part about that all is it's probably dissuaded some people from playing Mass Effect. And yeah, no, please the, play Mass Effect. It's so good. Play, play through them like the first like ninety nine percent of Mass Effect three was the best RPG I played that year. Yeah. And like I still like essentially, my brain just like there's nothing to contradict this. My brain just says, you know what? It did release a Reaper Killing Pulse. I don't care. <laughs> <sighs> but yeah, let's let's close this out before I rant a bit more. All right. Uh, so that is all for this week. Um, like I said before uh, about the contest, leave your your pitch for a Saturday morning cartoon based RPG on the forums or email and we're going to pick two random people to win that um, keep an eye out for me streaming make sure they're based on Ninja Turtles <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, check out I should have posted some Division Beta YouTube videos by the time this goes up uh of whatever streams I managed to do, which probably won't be a lot, but uh, like I said, it's an interesting game and worth checking out. Um, and as always, you can send us in questions on the forums, email, Twitter. I'm at we S-Wheels. finally do more of those saga streams we keep threatening today. We really do. Um, <laughs> gotta finish up the first one and then decide. I'll just go to two. Yeah. Just go to two. Uh, but yeah, I'm at 
S. Wheels on Twitter. Dave is at FanboyMaster. We discussed uh, at length at the beginning of this for some reason. Yes. <laughs> and send us some questions, etc., etc. Uh, sorry. We'll be left dead. Sorry for yammering about Tom Clancy games for way too long. <laughs> You're laughing at the very fact that you yammered about Tom Clancy games for an hour. Well, there's so many of them. I know. Next time we can talk about Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon breakfast cereal or whatever. Mm. We should just talk about the original Ghost Recon because those were pretty cool. That's not an RPG. Kind of. No. Sort of. But no. not. Gonna talk about Tom Clancy's Hawks. Uh, and maybe two of those? Crazy. Yeah. Well, they were probably we're like... talk about how Tom Clancy literally sold his name to Ubisoft before he died? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, with Hawks, they are probably like, hey, we made this engine. Uh, I'm, I guess we could make something back by making another one of these. Guess so. We can talk about whether Rainbow Six Patriots would have been the greatest RPG of all time, despite being a first-person shooter that got cancelled? Sure. <laughs> <sighs> But yeah, let's let's close this out. All right, and that's all for this week, folks. Peace out. Peace out. First, I got a new home.